Hi, and welcome to another episode of the ULI Toronto Electric Cities podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Warson. During this pandemic, one of the messages we often hear from our government leaders is to stay home. But what if you don't have a home? What then? This is the terrible challenge that Toronto's homeless face every day. And it's a crisis that has steadily worsened over the years and is now intensified as a result of the pandemic, further exposing the social inequities in our city. Kathy Crow is no stranger to this crisis. As one of Canada's first street nurses, she has been a longtime activist advocating on behalf of those experiencing homelessness. She recently wrote a book about it, and through her tireless work in this field, she received the Order of Canada and is now a visiting scholar in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University. So, Kathy, with all that, it is a great honor to have you on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. You know, um, a few days ago, I told my eight-year-old son that I was going to do a podcast about homelessness, and we, we talked a little bit about the topic, and he asked me quite simply, Dad, you know, why do people become homeless? And I thought, well, that's a great first question I should pose to Kathy. So, so Kathy, if, if you were to answer that question either to an eight-year-old or, or to an adult, what, what would you say are the reasons why people become homeless in Toronto or anywhere else, anywhere else mm-hmm. for that matter? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so uh, I'll, I'll talk about around the world and Canada. So we're kind of used to knowing about how people become homeless around the world through um, devastation by climate change, floods, earthquakes, war or strife. Um, but in Canada, it's primarily due to policies that have diminished housing. Um, now, as, along with that, we also do see people that become homeless because of a personal crisis, um, job loss, um, a health catastrophe, something like that. But primarily, it comes down to the fact that our supply of social housing, affordable housing, rent geared to income housing, those terms get used a lot, um, have been <clears throat> um, eliminated. Um, and as well, along with that, other, other government policies have made um, the economics of trying to survive harder. So, um, you know, how much do people wor- earn that work in McDonald's, even if they're 35 years old, minimum wage, right? Um, it's harder to collect um, what we used to call unemployment insurance if you lose your job. Um, pensions for seniors have not kept up with the cost of living. So we have poor seniors. So there's a lot of economic reasons. But I'll say, um, like, please tell your eight-year-old, when I first became a street nurse, I had the, um, you know, the, the misunderstanding that it would be all older people, mostly men, alcoholics with mental illness. And I learned that the exact opposite was true. And um, a friend of mine, David Holchansky, says the only thing people have in common if they're homeless is that they've lost their housing. Hmm. And is this, this is a problem, you're talking about um, 
policies and a lack of affordable housing. Is it mm-hmm. is it something that has um, steadily gotten worse over the years since a certain point of time, or is it has it really um, emphasized in, in in very recent years? Um, well, there's kind of several key waves that happened. Um, the first was in 1993 when the federal government essentially canceled, eliminated, killed, I use the word killed, our national housing program. And then provinces followed suit. Um, so that meant that we lost the building, the creation of 20,000 new units a year across Canada that was built when we had that national program. And in Toronto, that was close to 4,000 units a year that were built here. So that was like kind of the, the number one big double whammy that happened, the two levels of government cutting housing. And then, of course, we had, you know, kind of incremental challenges, um, cuts to welfare rates. Um, the 2008 recession was made, made it very hard. And then more recently, we've had what um, Lelani Farha, uh, who was the Canadian lawyer that was our, the UN rapporteur on the right to housing. She made a film called um, Push that is about the financialization of housing. So we're seeing large investment, large international investment companies um, coming in and it's most visible in Toronto, um, purchasing up properties, existing high rises, but also other properties and um, converting them into higher end housing um, and pushing people out. And that's where the term renovation comes from. So there's a couple layers of um, dehousing, you know, that's happening. Mm-hmm. What and was? Then I would say, sorry. Then, then I would say, with the pandemic, we can get into that. But with the pandemic, the massive amount of job loss meant that people who couldn't keep housing were pushed out of their housing. Yeah, I do want to get into that a little bit mm-hmm. later. But just on the mm-hmm. the um, the federal government and I guess the other government's mm-hmm. decision in the early '90s what was the the main reason for them to get out of that that business well it's interesting it was two federal governments um the conservative and liberal over a period of uh kind of a year and a half uh each was in power over that period of time that uh did their own steps in terms of cutting the program <clears throat> they argued that the private market would deal with the issue but clearly it was more of a component of broader neoliberal policies where governments were stepping back or there was a a retrenchment of government spending on social programs. And we've seen that, um, uh, we we see that now in terms of our public health care system, our hospital health care funding, our school funding, uh, secondary school funding, but it also happened to housing. So governments at that time were, we're pulling back from social programs and also downloading it to provinces and municipalities without success, obviously. Mm-hmm. So now, when I think of homelessness, I always seem to associate it with the big cities, uh, mm-hmm. like Toronto or Vancouver. Um, but is it also something that's evident in some of the smaller communities and even in re- even rural parts of mm-hmm. Canada? Yeah, it's in every single, I would say it's in every single community. 
including communities as small as Coburg or rural areas like Campbellford around Peterborough, uh, Kingston. Um, it's, it's growing. I was on, um, I was watching a show uh, the other night where somebody from Windsor talked about how they had maybe 130 families that were homeless and now it's doubled. Um, so it's definitely most visible in the big cities, Vancouver, um, Montreal, Ottawa, Toronto, Calgary, and partly because people migrate to the big cities when times are tough in their own community. But it's now in smaller communities and in rural. It's just that it's more hidden in rural. I actually am curious to know what life is like as a homeless person. You know, for many of our listeners, including myself, we only have a narrow idea of what life is like to be homeless we see it in the news, and, and we see homeless people on the sidewalk or, or nearby parks. But I think our understanding is quite limited. So I'm hoping you can describe in some detail what a day in the life of a homeless individual is like and how they go about surviving from one day to the next. Sure. Um, <clears throat> so just keep keep in mind there's also families with kids that are homeless and then couples and singles. And I would say with you know, with all of those kind of categories, if you will, it's a full-time job. Um, first, you have to secure shelter if you can, and it's a struggle nowadays to obtain a shelter spot. Um, if you have kids, you're trying to keep them connected to their home school, and if not, you have to connect to a new school for them. You're going to be living in a congregate site with many other people um, families generally have their own room but then common space is common space so you're trying as hard as you can to keep routines normal and you may not have um, a laptop or computer access or the, the normal things that your kids might have if they were still at home uh, there might not be homework space and there might be long very long travel to back to the home school because of where the shelter is. For other folks, it's um, um, many tasks, tasks in the day, such as trying to get your ID, your identification replaced if it's been lost or stolen. That means going to an ID clinic. Um, homeless people have an extremely high burden of poor health, so that means negotiating getting to a street nurses clinic or a family health team. And there are many sites, especially in downtown Toronto and, and Ottawa, where people can get health care from people experienced. Um, you may be trying to find a housing worker that can help you. Uh, that used to that used to actually achieve something about 20 years ago in that you could maybe finally get housing. It's almost impossible now. Um, so there, and there's the whole just surviving of being inside a shelter with anywhere from 40 to 250 other people, like depending on what shelter we're talking about, um, and trying to maintain your privacy, um, trying to be able to pay for a cell phone maybe if you need to stay, have a cell phone to stay connected with people. Um, you may be walking miles and miles every day, kilometers, I should say, to get to all of these appointments and things I've talked about. 
um, you may need to be outside just to get away from other people. Um, and so it is, so it's very, it's very hard <laughs> and you may not be sleeping well at night because you might be sleeping in a room with 99 other people. A couple shelters had a capacity of 100 just in one room um, until COVID happened. Um, so all of that is is just really it's just really hard. Some people are going to work. Um, we we learned in in Ottawa about some personal support workers that were staying in a shelter but working still. Um, and that's happened here as well. I've known many people over the years that were doing construction work um, or delivering flyers or doing piecemeal work that they could get hired to do. Um, there once was a shelter. It may still do this for people working. Men working could pay $10 a night for a shelter bed because that particular bed would have a be in a room. They could close the door and sleep at night. But, you know, especially in, in the, the coldest, the darkest nights of, uh, of the year mm-hmm. where uh, shelter mm-hmm. space seems mm-hmm. to be at a max and there's always mm-hmm. more demand, what, what do those people do when they can't get in? Well, so we've always had people um, living, sleeping, trying to survive outside um, in, in my memory for 30 years. But it used to be in small numbers. Um, and that exploded about two years ago. Um, there was a, an episode about 20 years ago in Toronto. It was called Tent City, it, which lasted for, 30, for three years. And it was an encampment of about 140 people on the waterfront that I was heavily involved with. Um, we brought in um, prefab houses, uh, sh- temporary shelters. Um, an architect um, helped the men that lived there to build um, what was called a pro home. It was like, you'd call it a tiny home nowadays. We brought in a generator, wood stoves were installed, and eventually we had over 50 shacks and prefab houses. So that was um, uh, that was a site that lasted for three years where the individuals that were there were very strong advocates for housing and very skilled. Uh, and then they were evicted because they were on Home Depot land and it was a brutal eviction so since then, there have continued to be encampments, and there has continued to be harassment of encampments. Um, many of them were hidden away in the Don Valley and places like that to be away from security guards and police. But um, pre, pre-COVID, uh, about a year before COVID hit, we were hearing that encampments were growing across the country. So places like Moncton, Calgary, Edmonton, uh, Kingston had encampments. And so I was in touch with people there. And in Toronto, we saw outdoor sleeping change. People began to sleep right on Bloor Street in front of Holt Renfrew or right on University Avenue, um, you know, along Hospital Row, very, very public places. Um, we, we think partly for safety and partly because of, they could easily access other resources Um, but then fast forward to today we now in Toronto anyway have uh, an estimated 1,500 people living outdoors Hmm. on any given night yeah and that's that's the huge emergency right now because they're being threatened with eviction by the city of Toronto so survival 
at that level is very, very difficult. And it actually is just as hard in the summer, I would say, as in the winter. Um, because extreme heat can be just as deadly as, as hypothermia. Mm. And access to washrooms, running water, food becomes an enormous task, um, an enormous challenge. Now you're a you're a trained nurse, and this has become um, a, a real um, you know a real pursuit for you for many years. Um, I, I'm curious how did how did your life path or career path mm-hmm. uh, lead you to to care and advocate for 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 the homeless? Uh, it was just accidental. I was working as a nurse practitioner at a community health center. Had been doing so for quite a long time. Um, but my role was frequently limited depending on who the doctors were at the time and the administration. Um, And so uh, a little organization called Street Health had just gotten provincial funding to provide health care that they'd been doing for homeless people. So I applied there knowing it was a nursing-run organization had no desire to spend the rest of my career hmm. providing health care for homeless people because I had all these stereotypes. And I applied primarily because it was nursing run, um, and I was the second nurse hired. So hmm. so it was really it's just not a very exciting story, actually. But it's, you know, from what I, I, I've seen, I've seen um, some little video clips, and from what I've read, I mean, it, it really takes... Um, tremendous mental stamina and, of course, physical stamina um, for for what you're doing. Um, how do you do it? Um, what what keeps you going? Um, well, I, I think the fact that it's so solvable, like the, the problem is so solvable. Um, the solutions are at hand because we're not we're not an impoverished developing country. Um, and, um, you know, it. There are there are quite a number of political wins that we've had, so we just keep celebrating the wins and keep pushing forward, and it's just what I do. And thankfully, there's a lot of other people doing it now too. Um, yeah, I mean, really, really interesting people have been put in positions where they've been disempowered, and and right now, I would say, really put in danger. Um, and it's not right. And I really am happy, especially today, there are more and more doctors that are speaking out and calling themselves social, social justice advocates and street nurses as well. And so, you know, what I've learned is governments kind of never hand something over policy-wise unless there's a groundswell of support and demand for it. So that's, you know, what we're trying to do. And we, it, it's gone in waves, our activism um, and of course, um, we're in an extreme pandemic right now, so it's even more challenging. Now, your book, A Knapsack Full of Dreams, Memoirs mm-hmm. of a Street Nurse, what is essentially, is that the, the message you're trying to get across is, is to raise awareness of, of this big challenge? Is, 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 is there anything else that, that you really want to shed light on in, in this book mm-hmm. for your readers? Um, well... I really, I, it's, it's interesting because I, I don't actually get to my homeless nursing career until about chapter 10 or 11. In the earlier careers, you know, I'm talking about the role I played as a nurse in nuclear disarmament, um, 
uh, fighting the great, you know, working on the great, great boycott that happened in the 80s and um, fighting for um, the Canada Health Act, um, which has a huge um, comparison to what's going to start happening now, which will be for long-term care to be included in the Canada Health Act. So it's really about uh, how somebody like me who never thought they would be involved in advocacy can do it. And then I get to homelessness and then it's very, very deeply into homelessness. And what I try to show is that the different ways that we've done advocacy on the issue, but also through the telling of people's stories um, or things that I've witnessed. Um, And then, um, so each chapter is introduced by a movie that really inspired me and influenced me. So there's one chapter that's called uh, Crouching, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And that's all about the, um, what I call the wielding of the sword, which is a metaphor for the way to wield your activism for political wins and I tell some stories there that you know range from what we did when a 19 year old girl burned to death in the Don Valley to um, public inquiries we had when tuberculosis outbreaks happened in the homeless population so I think what the book does is it explains homelessness but also um, there's an entire chapter that talks about the faults of our levels of government right now in terms of not responding because we we actually declared homelessness to be a national disaster in 1998 that was a huge national campaign and city councils and hundreds of organizations endorsed the the declaration of disaster back then and here we are today with everything you know everything is worse yeah yeah well, speaking of worse, we're now in, in the middle of a pandemic. So maybe you can tell me, how has COVID made homelessness even worse in Toronto? Mm-hmm. Well, so I'll, I'll tell you two stories of what the challenges were. First of all, when COVID hit, um, we realized that encampments were going to grow and they needed to have running water and washrooms. It took six weeks for us to convince the city to put two portable toilets at one encampment. Um, And then another month into the pandemic, this was April now, um, 300 doctors and nurses that all provide health care to people that are homeless signed an open letter to Premier Ford, Mayor Tory, and all of the health officials that are part of those two levels of government. And we wrote some really simple requests or demands in in that one of them was that those governments issue a directive that all shelters should move beds, cots, or mats two meters away from each other. Like we were all hearing that messaging, right? Mm -hmm. Say, you know, six feet or two meters, wash your hands, stay home. Mm -hmm. And in Toronto, we were pretty shocked when we were told um, Dr. Davila Uh, indicated that she would not do that and she has remember she has the power to issue emergency orders or directives in a pandemic she would not do that because she preferred it to be voluntary so in toronto we have over 70 shelters run by a whole array of organizations that are you know overloaded and 
they're not medical sites, you know. So anyway, we realized that this was going to be a, a death sentence for people. So we went to court. We actually took the city to court through uh, creating a legal coalition and uh, demanded that the physical distancing had to happen. So that led to a massive effort of decanting is the word. Um, you know, when you decant wine, well, yeah. apparently a legal term is decanting people from shelters into other places to decrowd shelters. So that led to that all happening. And now, and then that carried on, and now we have uh, close to 30 hotel programs in the city providing uh, shelter hotel uh, care to people that are homeless. But I would say that one of the most challenging pieces was the fact that when the lockdown was first declared, that's when a few people began saying to me, oh, Kathy, I know what you do, but I didn't realize we had so many homeless people in the city because um, coffee shops were closed, libraries were closed, community centers were closed, um, all the drop-in centers, and there are, I don't know, maybe there's maybe over 50 drop-ins in the city that provide everything from computers to free phone to showers to meals. They all had to shut down or change their operation. So that left people outside, mm-hmm. like, like literally, like they were, they were left outside, um, and that was really, really tragic and neglectful, and unplanned for, not properly planned for. Um, so the, I guess in the, in the immediate term, you mentioned mm-hmm. hotels, um, mm-hmm. and this is something that I think is happening in other countries and other jurisdictions. How has that, uh, as a short-term, maybe a Band-Aid solution, mm-hmm. how, how has that uh, transpired? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. It's been used around the world, actually, and not so much in Canada, but Vancouver has. I think Kitchener-Waterloo did and Toronto did in a big time, um, big way. Um, it, it was, uh, I think it, I think it has massively saved lives because it, it meant that locations, it meant that shelters that once had maybe 300 or 400 people inside or even 100, their capacity had to be reduced. So people got put into hotel shelters operated by community agencies primarily. And it meant they had, um, you know, less exposure to other people, they could be protected. So partly it was a huge success. uh, And I think we would have, you know, there's one um, epidemiologist I talked to in the early part of COVID who predicted that we would have several hundred homeless deaths due to COVID. And that did not happen yet. Um, So I think it was good. However, on the other hand, we had to learn from mistakes in the way it was done. So for example, there was not enough health and harm reduction supports provided. And we ended up seeing a lot of overdoses. There was not enough community um, education done when a hotel was opening in a community as a shelter. So there was a lot of backlash from the community. So by and large, you know, the city and organizations have learned from those mistakes 
Um, my biggest concern right now is that there's no plan for post-COVID. There's no plan um, with what happens next. And yeah, that was, yeah. was going to be my question. What What's the, the longer-term plan? Uh, you know, the, mm-hmm. the hotels are, as I said, a Band-Aid solution to deal with the problems mm-hmm. that you've, you've, you've described. But, you know, the, the federal government in recent, you know, they've, they've announced in throne speech, um, a billion dollar pledge for rapid housing initiatives. Um, the city right. has their their modular ho- housing uh, plan um, that right. we've seen on on Macy Avenue and in other areas. Right. Um, are you are you suggesting that it's not enough? It's not enough. Um, I so uh, we've got modular some modular housing sites that have opened and sites are uh there will be new sites and expansion of that program um the rapid housing initiative money theoretically um will allow the city of toronto to purchase a property that can be renovated converted into like single room occupancy permanent housing but it has to happen within a year and those um the federal government, the, the deadline for application for that is now closed and the federal government is reviewing applications. So my concern, um, you know, 14 months after the pandemic is that we have all these hotels leased and that they're continuing to add to the portfolio of, of leased hotels, but we haven't purchased one yet. Um, and we haven't purchased any other building yet. So the modular units are going up. And I would never, don't get me wrong, I would never say don't do it. I would never say scrap that because we so desperately need them. And I've been a proponent of this type of housing. We brought one into Tent City that I mentioned. But it's not a national housing program. And in some ways, um, because of the COVID pandemic and because of this particular rapid housing initiative, use of dollars, we're seeing um, homeless people um, ghettoized, if you will, into these modular housing sites. And, you know, I I live in the St. Lawrence community where you can't, you can't look at a building and say, well, that's a condo or that's a co-op or that's, you know, it's, it's all integrated. And it was built when we had a national housing program. So you have poor people living with well-to-do people and you have people that need supportive housing living with people that are retired and it's a mix. Whereas the modular housing, um, it's all homeless people all together, you know, like it, and, and they have to do that because of the emergency. I do get that, but no one should feel that that's an adequate response. It's essentially it's housing first, which is an American ideology. And I know that we have to do it in this pandemic but we also have to do the rest, which is invest in a, a robust national housing program that allows for co-op housing and family housing and seniors housing and mixed with RGI and rent supplements so that it can be mixed. Well, St. Lawrence community is certainly a, a model of, of, of first-rate planning in terms of that uh, mixed income and mixed use. Um, it's a model that's, that's uh, studied uh, by planners. I, I'm mm-hmm. actually I'm interested in in your thoughts on um, a little bit of the nimbyism, the not in my backyard uh, response uh, that happened recently to the one of the the proposed modular housing projects in the city's east end, 
where, um, you know, locals, uh, I think this is in East York, locals got up and oh, said, yeah. you know, this mm-hmm. this parking lot that's close to, <laughs> next to a community center, it's, you know, the heart of our community, um, they're really opposed to the idea of the, of, um, the modular housing for, for the, these uh, clients that we're thinking of. Um, how, like, nimbyism is, is a, you know, a facet of, of, uh, of planning, it's something that uh, everyone has to wrestle with. But how? What are your thoughts on how to address that? How to how to respond to that kind of sentiment yeah. from from the locals? Yeah. So I think this is where I think the city, <clears throat> the city and the local politicians, um, they have been very clear. Um, you can't people plan. You can't say who can live here. Um, you know it depending on the zoning and maybe they got a municipal zone, what's called an MZO or whatever. Um, um, Councillor Bradford and, and many others were on the other sites were adamant that, you know, we will hear you. We'll talk to you about it. We'll take your feedback, but you can't deter, you cannot determine, you do not have a right to determine who can live here. So they've been really good on that for the last few years. Um, And, you know, I know in a couple of cases they've hired uh, consultants to do public education and Zoom Zoom meetings and things like that. And they learned from the mistake of the Roehampton Hotel and the Broadview Apartments where they just plunked people in and there clearly were not enough resources at the the organizational level to provide supports. And the community went ballistic. So I think they've learned from that. Um, I think in a, um, this was so pandemic related in terms of the speed that I think there was not a lot of time to do the community education. And I don't know that you could have fixed that. Um, I think there's a lot of, um, I think there are like, I know that community pretty well and there's a lot of really great families and people in that community that I think are well-educated and I think they'll come on board. And uh, I think the main thing they have to do is make sure that they establish a community relations committee and also have, I think they're um, at one of the other locations. Anyway, they've, they've planned to have community space that say a local organization could book space in the common room or whatever of, of the, of the new buildings so that that kind of improves access and can demystify who's living there. So uh, I think it, I think it will pass. <laughs> right, and in in a lot of the other podcasts I've, I've done uh, in recent months related to COVID, um, I, I often want to end off just to look at the silver lining to the impact of of COVID. Mm-hmm. With regards to homelessness and 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 uh, COVID and how it's how it's impacted homelessness, has there been a, a silver lining to it all? Like as we've as we've experienced in the last uh, twelve months, fourteen months, we're we're certainly winning some better shelter space right now for people. Um, it's more humane, and I think the discussion is kind of just beginning that we can't go back to the way the way things were before. Um, in, in my thinking, it has to be one person per room in a shelter or one family per room. Um, and that means that we're going to need infrastructure money from a higher level of government to allow for renovations 
at shelters or the purchase of new shelter locations. Um, there's going to be have to have to be a change in a, in the funding relationship so that a shelter that really made its money by operating uh, with 200 people in the shelter and thus could hire maybe 50 staff, there's going to have to be a, a different scale of oper- operation. Um, <clears throat> so uh, uh, I think initially <clears throat> all the frontline organizations and workers and advocacy groups uh, obviously, they were in an absolute crisis and were not prepared for Zooms or webinars as a way to coordinate effort. Um, and now they're very successful at doing that. We had one this afternoon where everybody under the sun was in an emergency meeting with the city on the fact that there's no recovery hotel isolation space for people with COVID that are homeless. So people, so there's been a new level of activism. Um Right now, I'm reading um, a book by Seth Klein. Um, It's called A Good War, and it's about mobilizing that happened after the Second World War. And he's arguing that, like, he he makes the case for all all that happened after World War II that included, you know, a whole shipbuilding industry and job creation and a national housing program (laughs) that um, possibly, you know, I would argue that maybe we can see some change come out of COVID related to that. And I'm really heartened to see long-term care issues moving to the national level in terms of long-term care standards. Um, So that's, that's what has to happen because there will be something else that comes after COVID um, or COVID may be with us a little longer than we would like. Um, So we have to, to do something to protect people and um the only the only honestly the only protection really is housing and there's never been a time you know that housing has been so glaringly important for people are you optimistic that that we're gonna we'll we'll certainly um advance the yardstick in in the next uh short while that given all the attention because of COVID and because of um, the acute need that um, that things are really going to materialize? Yeah, I think it's going to be hard. Um, like, I think it's going to be very, very hard. Um, but I have to be optimistic, right? <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. um, the potential is there. Um, there's just a lot of barriers to creating the popular movement or a popular struggle for the issue. Um, Housing First, um, which is an American ideology that's now ingrained in Canadian policy, has been really damaging. Um, And all the national housing advocacy groups, and and I would add, you know, maybe most of of the housing researchers in the country get some form of funding from the federal level of government that, supports housing first and housing first is not about a national housing program it's it's about you know it's not housing for seniors it's not housing for families it's about removing i mean i'm simplifying but it's about targeting uh people with mental illness and addictions and it's it's more complicated than that that of course but um, how, you know, you have to wonder, like, if you visit or live in Toronto and you look at the condo cranes in the sky and then you also have any awareness of the housing shortage 
and especially during COVID with all the all the wonderful frontline workers. And I, by, by that, I mean everyone like who has lost their job, whether they're an artist or a musician or whatever, all those people that, that have lost jobs and can't afford housing. And look, the contrast, you know, condos versus nothing, like we have nothing happening. And that scene has to change. And so there has to be pressure and, it's going to be very, very hard. Um, so big decisions have to be made for sure. And there's a, yeah. a very strong financial element um, that, that goes along with that. I, you know, I, I really applaud all of the work that you put in to what you do over, the, over so many years. I, I guess it's been a number of decades now. The Order of Canada is certainly well-deserved. And, and thank you so much for broadening uh, the exposure of of uh, the plight of homeless homeless individuals, homeless families, uh, as you mentioned, couples of all ages and uh, of various backgrounds. It is something you know we see again passing by, but we really don't have a, an in depth understanding. So this is this is an excellent way to to better understand it. And for our listeners who are tied to the real estate industry, the planning industry. It's something that we really do need to be cognizant of uh, Mm -hmm. ever more so. So I appreciate your time and thank you so much for all all of your uh, comments on this podcast. Thanks a lot for doing this. Thank you.